are listening to the Good Shepherd Bible Church Sermon Podcast. Our mission at Good Shepherd is to proclaim the gospel so that all people will believe, grow, and hope in Jesus. One of the main ways we believe that we are accomplishing our mission is through the proclaimed word. We believe that the preached word creates and sustains the church. Our desire is to preach Christ crucified for you, which means we hope that Jesus is the substance and hero of every sermon and that Jesus is preached into the places of sin and brokenness into our hearts. We thank you for joining us and hope that you will believe, grow, and hope in Jesus. We feel like we gained 10 pounds while we were there. We ate so much good food and hung out with so many good people. Uh, so it was, it was just good for the soul and just for the whole thing. Thank you for making that possible for us. I, 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 make, I make it very clear that our people have been very gracious to make that a, a thing for us, and I'm, I'm very grateful. Hopefully the fruits of that will continue to bear in our ministry as well. Tonight, Galatians 3, 10 through 14. I also want to thank Judd, who's out doing more ministry for filling in. Um, heard great things um, but didn't get the chance to hear it myself, but um, heard great things. Thankful for men who can step up and minister the word. I think we all can, uh, generally speaking, agree. Uh, I, I'm a product of the 90s, right? So I'm a, I'm a millennial, okay, which probably changes the conversation a bit. But I, I used to not like being a millennial, but now I love being a millennial because I believe, and maybe you're there with me, that retro is just better, right? It's just better. Okay, a couple Monday nights ago, uh, there was an NFL game on where the Philadelphia Eagles put on their retro jerseys. And I'm just going to I'm just going to say it. Like they should have never left. Retro is just better. There's a reason we go back. It's because there's a timelessness to some things that should just never change. We should just be aware some things are timeless, they're good, the quality is high, there's a reason we go back. It's good. Retro's just better, right? It just happens. I mean, there's a reason we listen to things on vinyl now these days. Why? The sound of the crackling vinyl somehow just like you can't do Frank Sinatra on a CD. He just doesn't download or stream well off Apple Music as good as the vinyl just echoes in your living room. I'm sorry, it just doesn't, it just doesn't do it. Retro is better. I think the reason we love retro is because we recognize a timeless quality. I remember when the hymn In Christ Alone came out. I remember like as a, as a young teenager when In Christ Alone was gaining popularity. And I just remember hearing that for the first time. And I said, now that's a hymn. That's, that's like the old ones. That's like the ones that we are singing, like, it is well with my soul. We will never stop singing that hymn. It just, throughout Christian history, we'll look back 50, 100 years from now, we're still going to be singing that. Why? There's a timeless quality of sound and of message that just transcends the eras. We're going to be singing that in Christ alone is the exact same way. I think we can all recognize a little bit of timelessness, but there's also a little bit of struggle within there as well. Because we all recognize this craving for the new, don't we? Speaking of C.S. Lewis, since I was just at a conference, I feel like I should probably quote him somehow and in some way. 
C.S. Lewis was reportedly at one point confessing his, quote, chronological snobbery. He uh, had this understanding, or at least this belief, that he was getting better, the world was getting better, simply because of its access to novelty. Things were getting newer, and therefore that's why things were getting better. And he actually took time to repent of that. He said, that's not always true. There's a kind of chronological snobbery that we should probably be aware of and know that that's in the room a little bit. I kind of feel like with a lot of the new stuff out there, especially like sports jerseys, right? That's an easy thing for me to start looking at. With some of the new stuff, I always feel like people are just trying too hard. There is an empty discontentedness of the soul that makes people try out new things when the old is just as good. There's always this feeling like more is just needed. Well, why? Because I don't know more. Things grow stale, and at times you just need to refresh. We tend to like the new, the trendy. And this really is the same with our own understanding of salvation. How novelty and newness and trendiness creeps into the soul and starts to rob us of the old, old story of salvation. We tend to like the new and trendy versions of the Christian life that keep reinventing themselves over and over again. And you would think by now we would recognize the timelessness of the gospel story and the quality of its saving capacity. But we're always in our hearts looking for something new and novel. And a lot of times we catch us much like our hearts were on that one Monday night where we were just like, you know, those jerseys really are just better. We keep inventing ways to earn righteousness. We keep inventing ways to keep score or project a kind of lawfulness that's required to get into the club of the really spiritual. We start changing the goalposts of what it means to actually be new or be trendy or the new spiritual kids on the block. Everything from mundane and superficial trends to like church attendance or personal versions of piety or swaying entertainment choices that change by the decade something more deep and soul-searching to, well, how often do you commit that particular sin? Or how serious are those doubts you really have? Or how strong is your marriage? Or have you really turned yourself around enough? Are you a good mom? Don't you wish you were as talented as that guy? We keep changing the tune. We're always looking for new and trendy ways to value ourselves and to beef up our own spiritual progress. But there is a timelessness, or maybe I can say there is a vintageness or a retroness to the operation of the gospel that we have to pay attention to. And this is what Paul was trying to say to the Galatians. You guys are trying to invent new ways of spiritual formation. And the reality is, What you don't understand is the quality of what you've already had for ages and ages. This was even in our text last week as Judd covered it. Paul mentioned this idea that the gospel was preached beforehand. It was preached beforehand to Abraham, the forefather of the Jewish nation. The very Jews that Paul was talking with and mixing around with and that Peter tried to associate with at the cafeteria table, Paul mentions even in their great history 
the vintageness of the gospel preached before him that God had given to them that was salvific enough that all they had to do was, like their forefather, walk by faith, and there was no need to look for something new or novel. What they had was important enough. And now in our passage in verses 10 through 14, we're going to have four Old Testament passages mentioned in a condensed five verses. Four Old Testament quotations, all from almost different books, mentioned in five condensed verses. Or if you want to go back to the last nine verses that we'll cover tonight into last week's, there are six Old Testament quotes in nine verses, which is crazy. Paul's trying to highlight that this law-gospel distinction that we've been going back and forth on, that we've been in a different angle looking at and evaluating, this is not new. This is not something novel. This is the vintage stuff. This is the old school way. This is those 80s Philadelphia Eagles jerseys. They're beautiful. You don't need anything more than this. This is what Paul was trying to articulate to the Jews here in Galatia. After Paul had defended his apostleship, he had been on a constant loop clarifying the distinction between God's law and his gospel, between his demands and his promises, between a word of accusation and then the word of resurrection. And he's been talking about even this combination of this It's also a distinction as well that we need to keep in mind, this distinction, but yet you have to couple them together, your justification and your sanctification. These are two different things in the Christian life, yet they operate in the same way. They operate in the same way. They're not different in terms of operation. They're different in terms of stage or process in the Christian life, but they happen the exact same way. We are justified, and we all believe this, we are justified not on the basis of what we are able to achieve, but on the impulse of the heart simply to receive the promise of God in Jesus. The law makes demands. This is how you ought to live. You ought to be holy. You ought to love God and love your neighbor. But that word doesn't help us pass the grade. It helps us fail the grade. And then we look for another word, and that's the gospel. And this is the one-way love of God where Jesus comes and doesn't ask our permission, but he shows up in a manger. He lives a perfect life that fulfills the law. He dies a sacrificial death and rises triumphantly from the grave for us. And he gives that gift to us. This is the gospel. The law demands perfection and kills. The gospel promises resurrection and forgives. This is all our justification. That's the grounds for our justification. But what we begin to understand in the Christian life is that actually is the same process on which our heart is sanctified. That's the same rhythm that our heart is sanctified in as well. This is why Paul would encourage the Galatians, exhort them, do not go back to the law. Having begun by faith in Christ, are you now going to be simply perfected by what you do? May it never be. It's not how it works. You don't go back to the law. It doesn't, start, it doesn't start law and then go to gospel and then you go back to law. That's not how it works. It goes from law, which kills, gospel, which resurrects, and then you stay. You camp out there for the rest of your Christian experience until the self-righteous first Adam is finally squeezed out and choked out. Now, he won't ever be. 
right? What did they say? The, your first Adam was drowned in your baptism, but the body still floats. Your flesh still lingers on. You still see him all the time. He's defeated. He's dead. The law has said so. You have been crucified in Christ, but nevertheless, you live. Yet not you, but Christ lives in you. And the life that you now live by faith or in the flesh, you live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. This is what the heart of the Christian life is in a constant way. Christ lives in me. And so Paul makes it very clear. We do not set aside the grace of God. Not at any point in the Christian experience do you walk away from the realities of God's grace. It's the whole thing from start to finish. And this is what, again, we're going to look at again. This is, you're, you guys are going to hate me by the end of this because you're like, we just talked about this last week. All right, Paul's in this little groove. He's, he's proving an argument between this distinction between law and gospel. So here comes another angle. Here comes another angle. And we're trying to just look at the retro angle, the, 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 uh, the retro or vintage angle of this. All right, so you're going to hear a lot of the same things again in some ways, but I want you to put it in a different angle here again. Okay, The law brings a curse. Are we here? All right, the vintage gospel. The law brings a curse. Let's go ahead and read verses 10 through 14. Galatians chapter 3, verse 10 through 14. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, quote, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them, end quote. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for, quote, the righteous shall live by faith, end quote. But the law is not of faith. Rather, quote, the one who does them shall live by them, end quote. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, quote, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, end quote. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. First part of this, Paul wants to see that the law brings a curse. And again, this isn't new school stuff. This is old school stuff. This is retro version Christianity. This is how it should be. The law brings a curse. The law is this great operation of do. I think a lot of times when we talk about the law, we talk about its content. Of course, we have this in Jesus. Jesus said you can sum up the law with love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second commandment is like it. You should love your neighbor as yourself. But don't forget when you talk about the law, don't just talk about its content. Talk about its operation. In other words, what does this word do in the heart? What does it actually do? The word of God is living and active. So it's not just 2D in our minds. It's actually 3D in our hearts and minds and our lives. It works on us. Can I say it this way? We are not really the interpreters of scripture. The scriptures are the interpreter of us. That's the proper way of understanding. That's a, that's, a little, that's a little gem. That's a tweetable gem I just gave you guys right there. So you're live tweeting me out. There you go. That's a good one. The, the scripture is the one who actually interprets us. It is living and active. It's doing something to us. And so when you hear this command, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, don't just hear the words. Hear what it's doing to you. 
Hear what it's doing in your heart. And if you're paying attention, and if you're being honest, you're probably not having a lot of happy thoughts. Because this week, you probably didn't love the Lord your God with all of your heart. And you probably didn't get around to loving your neighbor just like you loved yourself this week. I don't have to press you on did you love yourself this week. I think you think you probably handled that like a champ. I think you did great. As a pastor, I can probably just like hand out ribbons. You did a great job of like loving yourself this week. Great job. Just ask your spouse how that went for you. <laughs> but you probably didn't get around to loving your neighbor just like you loved yourself. Probably didn't do that too well. So hear what the law is doing. The law is this word of accusation. It's an operation of do. Are you doing enough? Are you doing it? The law tells you this is what you need to be doing. Are you doing it? No. The problem is not a problem of information. The problem with the law has never been a problem of information. It's always been a problem of operation. Are you able to get it done? I say this all the time to my kids. Like, If information was the one thing my kids needed to obey, I think they probably would be great kids. I feel like I give them a lot of information. This is how you clean your room. This is how you talk to your brother. But the problem is not information. The problem is operation. They can't do it. They aren't doing it. I love them. They're not doing it. And guess what? I have to confess that neither am I when it comes to God's law. None of us are doing the operation. Can I give you an example? I've, I've used the example, I think it's a, it's a good one, of, of, um, of, of the iPhone, right? We have the iPhone. And then like sometimes in the Christian life, we think that we just need to download the Jesus app onto our current operating system. And that's actually not how scripture presents it. Like we have a broken operating system that can never get us to God. So adding Jesus using a broken operating system, that's not going to help you. You need a brand new phone. You need a brand new operating system. You need to switch to, which I would never recommend. You need to switch to some sort of Windows or Android version. I would never recommend that. But there you go. For the example, there we go. I got another example. That's a good one. uh, But I'll give you another example. I, uh, I have a history of uh, bicycling, uh, and one of our favorite spots is Hilton Head Island, a vacation spots. And if you know Hilton Head Island, you know there are bike trails all through Hilton Head Island. Well, I had my bike, and uh, this is before we had kids. And there was one day we were uh, on vacation with some friends, and I thought, I'm going to wake up, and before life happens and people want to like go to the pool and I have to try to find a spot to go biking, I'm just going to wake up early before anyone wants to get up, and I'm just going to go bike and get that done because I want to go biking. So I hopped on my bike, started out. This is like at 5.30 in the morning. like The sun was like not even coming up yet. It was pitch black. right? And I'm going out, and I'm like on the trails, and I got my little like road bike, and I got, you know, Pretty, pretty thin little tires, all right? I struck a pine cone because it's like, you know, it's down south where there's just pine cones and there's stuff everywhere, right? Pine trees and pine cones. So I struck a pine cone, blew my tire to bits. I mean, like, and like, oh, and like kind of fell over a little bit and like whatever, got to the side. Okay, it was fine. I look at my little bag and I realize I don't have a spare. So now I have to call my wife at like six in the morning by this point on vacation. Like, uh, I'm stranded. And uh, yeah, okay. 
it wasn't great. We still talk about it to this day with my friends. If we ever get together, they talk about how I you know, didn't wipe out. But I was stranded at Hilton Head Island with no hope. All right. Let's say the operation of the bike, I had, I had, a, I had a tire problem. I had a tire issue. Okay. And suppose you say, well, there's ways to fix that tire issue. People cycle around Hilton Head all the time with no problems. It's called just get a bigger tire, dude. Like get stop riding your road bike. Go get one of those like beach cruisers with like the tires like this fat and like just like pounds through pine cones. The problem is you had a tire problem. And yeah, that's easily solved. Get bigger tires or make, make sure you don't strike pine cones and you won't be stranded like I had. Okay. But what if that's that's not really the picture that Scripture gives us of the problem of our Christian life? But we just need a fatter tire. We just need to pedal harder when you see a pine cone, or maybe go around it. It's not like we have these like minor flaws that we can just like work out and, and kink out. That's not that's not the picture Scripture gives us when it comes to like whether or not we're successful at the law. Is can you just employ more tactics or think it through and then you can get it done? No, it's like I think the 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 biblical like equivalent would be like let's say I was like born without legs. And and now I want to go hop on my bike. Uh, okay, okay. Well, like I don't I don't have any ability to power my bike. So it doesn't matter what kind of tire I have. It doesn't matter like what kind of bike I I own. It doesn't doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter like the streets I'm going like it doesn't matter any of that stuff if I can't empower my bike. I mean, what's the what's the point? What's the point? And no one ever would encourage like a person with no legs to be like, hey, you know what you need? You need fatter tires. No, no one would ever do that because that's not the issue. It's a power problem. It's an operation problem. They're not able to do it. That's the picture that God gives to us of the the reality of the law in our lives. It's not that we could if we just kind of worked it out. It's like, no, we have no power to do it. This is why Paul would launch into these Old Testament quotes, because this has always been this way. And somehow we've tricked ourselves into some newer or, or uh, creative uh, uh, novel ways of thinking about the Christian life where we think like, oh, we can do it. Just, just get fatter tires. That's all you need. That's all you need. Just a little bit bigger tires. Just a way to evade those pine cones, man. You're going to be great. Paul makes it very clear. The first things he, he quotes, Deuteronomy 27, 26. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. And for that reason, he says, all who rely, if you try to rely on works of the law, you're under a curse. You're under a curse if you try. If you if you start to head out, you you pick up that bike and you start to like say, I'm gonna I'm gonna give this a whirl. You're under a curse. You can't do it. It's impossible. Deuteronomy 27 makes it very clear. This was actually the reestablishment of the Mosaic Covenant in, in this portion of Deuteronomy. As they were trying to retake the land, God gave them very specific rules on what they ought to be doing and what they ought to not be doing. And so he makes it very clear. There were blessings for perfect obedience, and then there was cursings for any disobedience. And the curses were extremely long, extremely long. And they were actually like very painful to the Israelites, who at this time would have been 
wrecked with like, man, we, we got to keep this. We got we to gotta do this because if we don't, we're going to be recaptured. They're going to take our land. Everything that we hold dear to our hearts, if we don't obey God, this is going to be serious stuff. And so he makes it very clear. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. So you can imagine they're on edge. They're ready. Their, their hearts are willing. They're wanting to do it. And Paul says the moment they started out on that path is the moment that they were under a curse. The moment they tried is the moment they failed. So he quotes Habakkuk 2. This is actually what Habakkuk realized. It's an incredible book, Habakkuk, the, the prophet. They were actually about to be, this is, this is later on in Israel's history. The northern kingdom had already been taken by this point, And the southern kingdom was not looking very good. And Habakkuk was actually raised up to try to call out some of the sins and say, hey, maybe now's the time to divert course. And maybe what happened to northern Israel won't happen to us And so God raised up Habakkuk in this moment to call out some of the sins. And so he was lamenting this. And he basically said, the righteous shall live by faith. That's the only shot we've got. Is not in our performance under the law. He recognized right away, if this is a law thing, if we're going to get out of here on the basis of the law, we're not going to get out. It's not going to happen. And so he makes this amazing quote. And this is old school stuff. This is like vintage Christianity stuff. The righteous shall live by faith. The righteous, those who God has made righteous, will actually survive it, not on the basis of works, but on the basis of trust. In other words, they're trusting in God outside of themselves. They're not looking at lawfulness inside themselves. Habakkuk pointed that out. It's crazy. Paul mentions that here. That was your hope, Israel. You thought it was about what you had to do. That's not it at all. God wanted you to trust, just like the Exodus, to trust in what he would do for you. Big difference. So in verse 12, but the law is not of faith. Rather, another quote from Leviticus 18, the one who does them shall live by them. And Paul makes it very clear. Here's the operation of the law. It's do or die. Maybe I can say it this way. It's the, uh, it's, it's Samuel L. Jackson is like, good luck. And, and Batman, in the, in the Batman trilogy, he's like, good luck, right? Good luck. You can try, but good luck. Or it's the, may the odds be ever in your favor. Good luck. You want to live by the law? Okay, be prepared to die by the law. The one who does them shall live by them. It's a, it's a nasty game, this lawful stuff. The law is an operation of do, and he makes it very clear, something that I think most Christians need to grapple with. The law is not a faith. The law is not of faith. I mean, this is a direct quote. This is verse 12. But the law is not of faith. If you are going to live your entire Christian life with this operation that you have to do something, that you must do something or else you're not saved or you're not saved enough or you're not moving in a salvific direction, whatever you want to say about it, if the operation is due, understand the due is the problem and that is not the same operation as faith. Different operating systems are at work. There's the operation of do and all the things you have to do or keep doing. And then there's an entirely different operation. And Paul makes that distinction very clear. The law is not the same operation as faith. They are two different things. 
my friends, that will change your Christianity. I promise you, it will change your Christianity. And some of you might be nervous. Hang on, hang on. But be nervous, please. Because you not being nervous probably is going to put you in Peter's shoes at the religious table. And Jesus loves you too much to keep you religious. He'd rather have you actually saved. The law is not of faith. Can I give you some more quotes from Scripture? Romans 14, 23, Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. You can do the law and be as sinful as the worst person on the planet. Why? Because the law, this operation of do, is not of faith. And anything not of faith is sin. <laughs> Crazy. Or how about Hebrews 11.3? Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Some of you talk about, like, don't we have to please God? Yeah, how are you going to do that? With the operation of do? Is that what you're going to use? This operation of the law, which tells you all the things you have to do? Without faith, it's impossible to please God. You want to be pleasing to him? You want to live a life that's pleasing to him? You want to live a life that does all to the glory of God? Well, it's probably your doing that's in the way. It's probably your doing that's actually in the way of actual faith, trusting in him to deliver you, trusting in him to produce in you what he wants to produce in you. Hang on. If you're mad about it, hang on. Jay Gresham Machen Oops, I go too far. I can't see on the back. Oh, I'm way too far. Give me a second. Oh, no, I'm not. What's going on? Here we go. These words, he who has done them shall live by them. Paul means to say, describe the nature of the law. It requires doing something. But faith is the opposite of doing. So when the scripture says that a man is justified by faith, that involves saying that he is not justified by anything he does. There are two conceivable ways of salvation. One way is to keep the law perfectly, to do the things which the law requires. No mere man since the fall accomplished that. The other way is to receive something, to receive something that is freely given by God's grace. That way is followed when a man has faith. But you cannot possibly mingle the two. You might conceivably be saved by works, or you might be saved by faith, but you cannot be saved by both. It is either or here, not both and. But which shall it be, works or faith? The scripture gives the answer. The scripture says it's faith. Therefore, it is not works. It's an incredible statement. This is the reality of the vintage gospel. The law is this operation of do, but number two, the gospel assures the blessing. The law brings a curse, but it's the gospel that actually assures the blessing. This is verse 13 and 14. The law brings a curse. And the very first word in verse 13 sets the tone for really the rest of Paul's message. The law brings a curse, but my friend... There is Christ. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So you guys, scripture says that we are born in sin, which means we are born naturally under the operation of the law. 
This has brought us a curse, a curse of sin and a curse of death. How can then we escape the curse of the law, its demands, and even its guilt and shame? How can we escape it? His answer is the first word in verse 13. It is Christ. He is the antithesis to the law, though he is the fulfiller of it. But my friends, he is the end of it as well. The end of its operation. The end of its say in our life. Now, the law still does things. It still is operative in the Christian life. But it is powerless. It doesn't have the final say. As Paul would later go on, we're going to see in just a little bit. It's the law until Christ. Once you have Christ... There is no need for the law. Now, again, the law is still operative. It still works. It's still living. It still does the thing. It still speaks. But there's no more to be said about the law when Christ is there. How are we redeemed from the curse of the law? It is Christ. How? Number one, he redeemed us. He redeemed us. It is he bought us or he paid the price for our purchase away from the law. How did he make this payment? He made this payment by himself becoming the curse, becoming our curse, taking on our sin and our shame, which is why this is the fourth quote of the Old Testament, this vintage story, Deuteronomy 21:23. Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus himself became the ultimate covenant breaker, the one punishable by death. That kind of covenant breaking. That kind of shameful, treasonous covenant breaking that no Israelite would have ever wanted to be a part of. Jesus himself took on willingly and he redeemed, he made that payment price. Look at the, look at, look at the, the word in verse, four, four, uh, excuse me, verse 13. By becoming a curse for us. He did that for us. There are three really big, fat theological words that are included in this word. We're going we're gonna to go through them, all right? This is, this is going to help you with uh, theology jeopardy, okay? But these are not just things that I want to impress you with. These are things that Paul is talking about that help you work out this freedom from the law. Why are we free from the burden of the law? These theological things matter. So here's some big fat words. Hopefully they encourage you and don't daunt you, okay? But we're going to talk through them. Here, here they are. Number one, double imputation. That's a big fat word. Double imputation. That is, imputation is this idea of crediting. Crediting, okay? So if... Somebody overcharges me on a credit card, they will impute money to me. They will credit money my way. It's a crediting. It's an imputation. Okay? In this work, in Christ's redemption, we have a double imputation going on where Jesus himself is imputed with our sin and we are imputed with his righteousness. This happens at a simultaneous moment at the cross. Actually, not at the cross. We'll, we'll talk about it. It actually happens before the cross. Well, we'll get, we'll get there in a little bit. We'll get there in a little bit. This double imputation. This is the language where Paul says, for us, he became a curse, redeemed us from the law. And then we have this in verse 14. So that we, 
might receive the promised Holy Spirit. You see that? For us, he became a curse so that we might receive the promised blessing. He received the curse. We received the blessing. What is the blessing? You have to go back to verse 8 to discuss what this blessing is. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preach this gospel. The blessing that we receive, that Paul's talking about here, that he's defending, is the justification of the Gentiles. That's you and me. It's beautiful. How is this received? Through double imputation. We receive the blessing of justification. Jesus himself is treated as the sinful one. He becomes the curse. Here's another big fat word. Penal substitution. You see the word penalty involved in there? Okay. The substitution for our penalty. It's another big fat word. Jesus took away the penalty. What we deserved by our sin, Jesus received. Jesus took. My friends, this will also wreck your soul. (laughs) Wreck your Christianity. Jesus took your sins away so that there are no more sins to be thought of on your account. That's what we mean. That as we in our own hearts invent brand new sins, these are sins that have already been covered by the penal substitution of Jesus. The sins that you have yet to commit, that you will commit, that you are planning even at this moment to commit, they are still covered under the blood of Jesus' substitutionary atonement for you. He has embraced the penalty. You, You cannot incur penalty with God on account of sin. That's what we are talking about. You say, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. Absolutely. This is number one, seen in Jesus' baptism. This is John 1.29. Jesus had no sins to speak of. John the Baptist is preaching a, a message of repentance. Hey, all of you guys need to repent. Come bring your sins into the water. Leave them here in the Jordan. And all of a sudden we see Jesus walking into the Jordan. And you can imagine John the Baptist being like, hey, 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 only people with sins, please. Only, only, only people with sins to contribute to this watery mess here, please. And Jesus says, no, 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 you don't understand. I don't come to contribute sins. I come to soak them up. And what does John say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's where, that's where it starts. And then this is prophetically spoken of in Isaiah 53, the suffering servant psalm. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We, every one of us, have turned to his own way. But here's the kicker. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He took them away. This is confirmed again in Paul with 2 Corinthians 5.21. And this will, 
This will make you think all sorts of weird theological things. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we in him might become the righteousness of God. Now, that'll make you think all sorts of crazy things. And to be honest, I'm not sure exactly where it starts and stops, but I, I I know two things. I know two things. Jesus did not become sinful in the way that he was actually contaminated in a way that actually would bottom out the sacrifice. No, 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 the, the sacrifice worked. So we know that the sin didn't change his nature. He didn't become a sinner at this moment by nature. But in this way, our sin was imputed to him where he actually, in the eyes of God, deserved the wrath he was receiving. The very thing that we deserved, Jesus took on himself freely in a way where God was just, right, and happy to execute for his sake and for our sake. That's, those are the two things I know. You keep those in tension and try not to separate them. I, I don't know. You're probably with the rest of us that so just check out and just don't probably say too much more or else you'll get in trouble. Right? But that's, but that's what I know. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become actual righteousness. I appreciate Corey's language. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick on it just a little bit. I love you, Corey. We're going to pick on it just a little bit. <laughs> it's right. What you said was right. I'm going to clarify it. Okay? We tend to think in this way, and it's right. I don't want to say it's wrong. It's right. That like when God sees us, it's almost like God puts on the lenses of, I don't know, godness. And now with these proper lenses, now he sees us as righteous. That is true. Okay? But, like, God doesn't have to play Halloween and dress up in order to see us as righteous. In Christ, we are righteous. He sees us for who we are in him. We are united to the nature of Jesus. I'm just... I know theologically it's going to mess you up, okay? But it's, in, in other words, God isn't playing mind games with himself to try to make sure that he sees you in the right light. You, you have act, the actual righteousness of Jesus in you, living and breathing in you. You are not like wannabe righteous or fake righteous. You are righteous on account of Christ in as much as Jesus was made to be real sin in a real way that actually atoned. Hear me? Hear what I'm saying? All right, gets a little tricky. I probably shouldn't say too much or else I'll find myself in trouble. But I just want you to know, this isn't like God's not playing dress up with you. He's he's not trying to fool himself. As long as God has these right kind of glasses, then he'll see. No, no, no. You are actually righteous. Your sin was actually placed on Jesus. His sin atoned for. Now there's no more penalty for you. Jesus took it. Another word. Propitiation. Propitiation. Big fat word, it means to like satisfy the wrath of. Like I just think of like snuffing out the fire. It's propitiated. It's satisfied. Okay? We're saying that tonight. The wrath of God poured out and satisfied. Propitiation. That's what that means. There is no more wrath. The curse has been lifted. If the law brings a curse and the curse has been lifted, then my friends, there's no more wrath. It would be unjust for God to be angry with you on account of sin. God is not unjust. 
He is no longer angry with you because of sin. This is confirmed in Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's been poured out. It's done. It's amazing that I get to say this to you tonight. But from the words of scriptures that we just have tonight, not to mention the rest of the corpus of scripture, there is no more sin that you have to pay off. There is no sin that you are committing, have committed this week, or will commit that God is going to ask you to go and do something in order to pay it off. There's no more doing when it comes to squelching this feeling of guilt. It's been covered. The substitution has been substituted. The redemption price has been paid. It's it's over. God is not asking you to do or become something that will make him happy with you. The happiness that you long for because of Christ you currently have. He doesn't change his mind on you because of your sin. Because of what we have here, the curse of the law has been lifted. The operation of due has been canceled. There's no more of that. All you have to do yet to do is just to believe what he has done to trust what he has done, to live in the sphere of what he has done. Maybe I can say it this way. Your justification and your sanctification is vintage stuff. You don't have to invent new ways to try to be sanctified this week. Go back to the old stuff. Go back to the stuff that's actually higher quality, where Jesus paid it all, all to him you owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. Go back to the old school stuff. It's the best kind of salvation, that vintage stuff. Not this new, invent a new way to be perfect stuff. That stuff is awful. You have a retro salvation that is timeless. And now, like I did on that Monday night, I just could sit back and watch a football game. I don't care who wins. I'm just watching these really cool jerseys. Look at that stuff. Look how awesome that is. We just get to sit back and watch the work of God as he reminds us of his full, final salvation from start to finish in Jesus. Do you guys remember the old, uh, speaking of old, the old hymn, I love to tell the story? It's a good one. I love to tell the story, to be my theme in glory, to tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love. Anybody? Anybody remember that? Good old, good old hymn. You might not remember or even know some of the best verses that we don't tend to sing in that song. Maybe you haven't. Christ Jesus, pure and holy, without a spot or stain, by wicked hands was taken, was crucified and slain. And now the word is finished, the sinner's debt is paid, because on Christ the righteous, the sin of all was laid. I love to tell the story, to be my theme in glory, to tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love. O wonderful redemption, the price for sin is paid. Salvation is accomplished. My heart is unafraid. For God has raised Christ Jesus to show the work was done. His glorious resurrection declared my victory won. I love to tell the story. T'will be my theme in glory. To tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love. I love to tell the story for those who know it best seem hungering and thirsting to hear it just like the rest. 
And when in scenes of glory I sing the new, new song, it will be the old, old story that I've known for so long. I love to tell the story. It will be my theme in glory to tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love. May that be our heart's cry tonight. Let's pray. Salvation, come on to me.